Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. Today we will be discussing an article called Jane Crow and the Law, Sex Discrimination and Title VII by Polly Murray and Mary Eastwood. This article was published by the George Washington University Law Review in 1965 in response to the Civil Rights Act, which had been passed the year before in 1964. And this title asks, quote, the extent to which the Constitution may protect women against discrimination and the interpretation of the sex discrimination provisions of the Equal Employment Opportunity Title of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, end quote. This article was read and the argument later used by a rising star at the ACLU, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and it was used to convince the Supreme Court that the Equal Protection Clause does indeed apply to women. So this is an exciting moment for our history project because the podcast is now entering the civil rights era, and we're going to start to hear from authors who have new and more expansive, more inclusive concepts of women's experiences within patriarchal systems. And this itself is a landmark article. It's written by brilliant and groundbreaking lawyers. And I'm so lucky to have a brilliant lawyer here as my reading partner today to discuss this work. So I'm super excited and want to welcome Rochelle Briscoe. Hi, Rochelle. Hi, Amy. So glad to be here with you. Congratulations on the podcast. Thank you. I'm so excited to have you. Um, Rochelle and I became friends in Los Altos, California. Our kids, actually, our youngest kids became just best buddies in elementary school. And um, it was through our youngest children that our families became friends. I love, I've loved getting to know your family and I've loved watching that friendship. I think it's so special because it's my son and Rochelle's daughter. And I think like in late elementary and middle school years to have friendships that are like a boy and a girl friendship are really, really special. And they kind of like, they have, I, I asked Stone one time, like, what, what are some things you have in common with Leah? And he's like, um, everything. I can't think of one single way in <laughs> which we're different. And I was like, that's amazing. Um, and we just love your family. We, um, we've had some dinners together and just think you guys are just all of you so brilliant and so interesting and warm and lovely people. And we've just love becoming friends with you. So oh, thanks. The volume is here. mutual. Of course. Thank you. Um, okay, so we always start out by telling a little bit about the the reading partner. So if you could just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about where you're from and just the perspective that you kind of bring to the text and things that make you you. Oh, sure. Well, um, I am the youngest child born into a very large family of eight. Um, yes, it's a Southern Baptist family. People usually ask whether or not I'm Catholic. Um, and both my parents were part of the Great Migration. Um, so as American descendants of slavery, neither of my parents actually even had a high school education. And the first chance they got to better themselves and, and look for an opportunity, um, they left the South, Mississippi and Arkansas, and headed to California. Some of their siblings headed uh, north up to Ohio and Cleveland, Chicago area. Um, but my mother's mom, uh, my ma Sue, who I named my daughter after and who was my idol, uh, was actually a sharecropper. 
which is um, just an extension of slavery, Black families that continued to work the land, uh, use that work to pay for rent in kind, um, and stayed in many of those plantations uh, where their parents and siblings had been held as slaves. And so for her to, you know, ultimately also leave with my mom and, and, and start a life in California, it's, it's the reason we're all here. You know, she was our, our matriarch and quite a strong, powerful feminist um, mm. to have been born in 1920. I think that's part of what made me me. Um, and when I say, you know, oh, my parents migrated from the South, came to California, people start thinking bright lights, big city, Hollywood, you know, or palm trees. Mm. But <laughs> somehow my parents found a really small rural town in, <laughs> in the agricultural part of uh, Southern California. So I think people joke that my my dad, people usually say the phrases, you can take the boy out of the country, but not the country out of the boy. <laughs> but somehow my dad just brought the country to California with him. Hmm. Um, I mean, we had chickens in the backyard. Um, he had, you know, wow. horses. There were even geese at one point. Uh, and and yeah. somehow in that area, I, I found um, just powerful, amazing women like my grandmother, um, like an educator in my elementary school, um, like one of the women who was women who was a secretary um, for our board of education in Rialto. And by the time I was in second grade, I'd really developed an interest and love for law and politics. Wow, um, second grade. Second grade, yeah. That's a path you... no seven-year-old should really determine. Oh, sorry. Please. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, how did you even know about law in second grade? I mean, how um, was that on your radar? Exactly. I Somehow I did two different reports uh, during that time. And my mom and I talk about it because she remembers. I think one of them was probably part of Black History Month. And another one was just, you know, U.S. presidents, um, which you do in second grade. And so I uh -huh. learned about Martin Luther King and John F. Kennedy. Um as a second grader and wow. I wanted to dig deep. We had encyclopedias, of course, when I was in elementary and, you know, looking up things about how both of them got into the past that they took, you know, going to school, being interested in changing politics, being an advocate as a young age, um, you know, having a, a legal background in, and like JFK a brother with a legal background and became the attorney general, just all of these things were so fascinating um, wow. to me. And there's, there's not, you know, any rhyme or reason to how I found that path, but mm. it definitely shaped me. I mean, by the time I hit middle school, I was volunteering for our neighborhood or local government, government initiatives. Like, I mean, I was stuffing envelopes for local campaigns. <laughs> I ran for student body president, middle school, high school. I mean, just, I loved it. And, um, Amazing. yeah, I mentioned this woman, her name was Amina Carter, who'd been, you know, an administrator, the board of education and worked for, um, our local state congressman mm -hmm. told me about the page program. Congressional pages were allowed to go and live in Washington, D.C. and study during their um, junior year of high school. And and that opportunity took me took me out of this really small rural town of Rialto in Southern California to Washington, D.C., the furthest I'd ever gone. First time in my life at 15. Wow. Um, and yeah, if I thought I was interested in law and politics back then, it was just a deep, deep love. Um, 
we had a, a great time. There wasn't uh, email and, you know, passing of text messages then. So congressional mm -hmm. pages literally, you know, ran messages between the House and the Senate, um, went down to the floor, you know, let folks know about calls, did work um, uh, with the congressmen, you know, during off hours. And we went to school, we went to high school in the morning between 6 a.m. and 10 a.m. before the workday started. And so it was a busy life. But yeah, I mean, just the, the things that happened then, um, meeting Rosa Parks and Nelson Mandela, I, it was over for me. I, I came back to California and um, I told my folks I'm, I'm going to school in D.C., I, wow. In fact, I only applied to college in Washington, D.C. Really? I mean, I had been born and raised in California, not the UCs. I mean, a lot of parents, right? You raise your kids in California. We have an amazing public school system. I didn't apply to any UC. I didn't apply to one state school. I didn't apply to Stanford. I applied wow. to every school in Washington, D.C. And I just, wow. <laughs> I knew I was going to get back there. And can yeah. I, sorry, just to pause, you met yeah. Rosa Parks and Nelson yes. Mandela? Oh yes, Rosa gosh. Parks came um, to the Congress that year. And actually, um, I was an intern with the Congressional Black Caucus, and she took a photo with the CBC. But then the, the interns, those of us who are Congressional Pages, she took a picture as well. So wow. um, I know this is, I mean, this is my 15, 16 year old self. And it, it, so many amazing paths, I think, that ultimately you know, led me, I was, you know, I went to Georgetown School of Foreign Service. And I think then getting that global perspective of, of politics and what law looked like for those of us in the US and women and people of color around the world. I studied in Japan, Kenya, Nicaragua. Um, and when I got finished, I came back to the US. And of course, I enrolled in law school. Um, I was still on that path and I went to Davis, the King Hall School of Law in Northern California. Um, I was also our law school uh, president there as well. And um, I, I took a really, you know, interesting path in the law. I loved it. I was at an externship um, in the courts and then I was a, a clerk, you know, at the federal appellate level in Sacramento. I, I came out of school, you know, and did some pro bono work with Harlem Legal Clinic and and ultimately landed in um, a big law firm, you know, Chicago based from the New York office. And it's interesting because it's a practice of law, learning law, so much study, but a lot of other things happened when I became a young lawyer, including instead of reading about it, actually getting to understand um, the glass ceiling. Uh, mm -hmm. looking around courtrooms, looking around my office building, seeing very few women. And, mm -hmm. and we talk about inclusion and diversity. Then that just meant another woman lawyer, as broad as people think about inclusion and diversity now. I mean, we were desperate to find women. And I was on the litigation team, you know, in court a lot. And male partners would say to me, oh, you know, a lot of women aren't in the courtrooms. This is in the late 90s, early 2000s. Oh, you're different, Rochelle. Oh, it can be very intense. And wow. you, it's it's an isolating experience. Um, you know, and I practice everywhere. Initially, I you know, passed the California bar, worked there. Then I went to New York. I was licensed in D.C. I, I love the law. I love learning. Um, I didn't see a lot of faces that look like me. And I had mm -hmm. no women role models 
um, joining our diversity council and the hiring council was the first time I think I recognize the power that we have um, as women and women in leadership to help bring someone else along to coach folks, you know, through interviews. And, and that was sort of a transition for me. Uh, um, it was probably around 2008 or 2009 then, you know, we had the recession hit some, some really big, big players and the market went bust. And it was interesting. I'd also, you know, become a new mom. And, and I was, I was thinking about this wheel, this legal wheel, this journey I'd started at, at seven mm -hmm. and that I was wedded to. Um, but what I really wanted to do was figure out how to bring in, find, include more people that just weren't usually there. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was very fortunate. I was able to transition, um, in my legal practice and use my legal background to help conduct searches and bring in senior legal counsel to in-house jobs, move into an attorney search director role. Um, I'd relocated from practicing in LA and was back in DC. Um, and by, you know, 2010 and 11, I just knew, you know, finding folks, getting great people, not typically at the table, to seats of leadership, to legal positions is what I wanted to do. And I was, you know, amazed to be offered the job of a lifetime um, in 2013 uh, to join President Obama's White House um, as special assistant to the president for the Office of Personnel. And mm -hmm. it was so interesting to be in a space where I was leading legal recruitment and retention for the president's senior appointments. We were placing people in general counsel office through the federal government, um, transitioning leadership at the Department of Justice, working with Eric Holder and bringing in, you know, Attorney General Loretta Lynch and finding inspector generals from all backgrounds. And I, I never imagined that my legal career and passion for politics would bring me to that space. Um, mm. But when the president calls you your people person, you just roll with it. And <laughs> I, I have found a passion. Yes, just just a niche there. Um, you know, my final year was really doing a lot of work with the United States Digital Service. Um, that was Obama's plan to really partner with Silicon Valley and bring the federal government into the 21st century through technology. Um, people would be really surprised to hear and recognize that in 2010, 11, I mean, in very modern times, we had people applying with paper applications, you know, for social security benefits. We had wow. vets trying to go to the VA, you know, fill out forms, mail something in from their state to, you know, headquarters in DC. There were terrible stories about, you know, the backlog with processing vet applications and fires and not being clear if we'd lost something. So United States Digital Service, that that team that was built up um, was meant to be bipartisan completely to digitize the practices, to allow people to, to apply online, to have records, you know, in clouds and to work through it that way. Um, and yeah, I think, I think that was another, you know, recognizing technology and the growth kind of my my similar path with what was happening in Silicon Valley that was part of 
changing the global landscape. You know, we were in D.C. and I'd always thought Washington, D.C. was the seat, you know, of law, of mm. politics, of changing, of having impact. And I met a lot of people, you know, who'd been in um, places, you know, thinking about changing, bettering people's lives. And, and ultimately, you know, in 2016, um, after leaving the administration at the end of Obama's term, I, I, I headed out to Silicon Valley, like you said, where we met. I mm-hmm. um, started with Google in 2016 and um, transitioned to create a candidate development program at YouTube. And now I have a couple of roles at YouTube, including leading our racial justice work across our platform and um, the people officer doing work on coaching and developing our tech execs. Um, but Amy, ultimately, I think the hardest role I continue in um, is that of wife and mother. <laughs> I have uh, been married to my husband for 18 years, almost 19, mm. um, although we met about 29 years ago. Uh, wow, I forgot yes, you dated for so long. Yes, we did. Yeah, yeah, just in Southern California, you know, walking along Venice Beach, you know, mm. we dated for a long time before getting married. And and we have two teenagers, a 13 and 14 year old in the house. It's such an interesting time <laughs> um, <laughs> to have, you know, teenagers. Our son, Maceo's, is very strong willed and passionate. And um, Leah is a wonderfully understanding and open minded, wildly confident 13 year old. Mm-hmm. Um, they each have a dog. So we have two dogs, two kids. Um, and we are living an incredible journey, um, raising children right now in America, mm-hmm. struggling with grace, fun, a lot of guidance from our ancestors. So this article, this podcast, it's it's a perfect time to discuss all of this with you. It makes me think about how much and how little has changed at times. Mm, yeah, for sure. Wow, that was an amazing um, bio, and it makes me wish that we had like a whole hour just to talk about you. Honestly, I have to say for listeners, like, um, also, like when when I introduced you and talked about, oh, we're friends, and you're so warm and lovely and so smart. I have to throw in, I I am really glad I didn't know about your career and that you had, you know, worked for President Obama in the White House. I didn't know that when I first met you. And I'm glad I didn't because I first just knew you as the nicest person and the nicest friend. And I think I would have been so intimidated (laughs) and starstruck. Um, But it's so amazing to hear your life story and, um, and actually just put those, I mean, we've talked about a bunch of those things before as we've mm-hmm. just chatted and stuff and knowing your husband, who's just the most amazing person too. And you're very similar in your brilliance and in your um, kind of just your achievement and just the most inspiring human beings and also just the loveliest people. So um, I just feel honored that you're here to talk about this with me. And especially, like I said in the beginning, as a lawyer too, and bringing that perspective to the text is really helpful because a lot of a lot of things that I, as I've been reading about Title Seven, then later Title Nine, and even the ERA, I'm like, uh, I don't know that I really understand this. I need to ask. I need to call Rochelle. Like, I don't, I don't get it. Anyway, um, really quick before we jump into that part, though, I want to. I, I usually just ask my reading partners, what interested you in doing an episode of Breaking Down Patriarchy. I mean, this podcast, Breaking Down Patriarchy, I mean, it's so 
important and and part of truly my lifelong passion for any space that gives voice to women's issues, causes that impact us, our daughters, our colleagues, and that sadly are frequently overlooked. Um, you know, one of the things that I mentioned was, you know, I, I was born into a Southern Baptist family and the Southern Baptist black churches are very traditional. I mean, even in the eighties and nineties, we, you know, wore only dresses or skirts. There were no women with titles in leadership at our church. Women in our church were denied any positions behind the pulpit. That didn't include um, singing in the choir or church announcements. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, I was actually a college student. I was in Washington, D.C. in the mid-1990s before I ever saw a Black woman minister preaching. Um, you know I and, can relate as a, as a Mormon because we've talked about this before. Yes. Different, different environments, but with actually a lot in common. Yeah. So, yeah, it makes so, an impact. So, yeah, this, po this podcast is, is the kind of uh, new impact that I hope, you know, with you putting this out there, with these conversations, with the stories of, you know, these legacy giants in women's studies, I just hope it moves, you know, forward in wonderful ways. Oh, thanks, Rochelle. Awesome. Well, let's um, let's begin. We're going to talk a bit about the authors of this document, Polly Murray and Mary Eastwood. And um, it's going to be a bit of a history lesson because we need to talk about also what was going on in the country at the time that led them to write this document. Um, I also want to mention to listeners that we'll be quoting um, texts from the early and mid 20th century. And so the language will sound outdated in places and maybe a little uncomfortable. Um, for example, the word Negro was the word most often used to describe people of African descent at that time. And that was considered respectful. I mean, if, if you think back to even listening to Dr. King's speeches, that was the lexicon at the time. And so it, it sounds offensive to our ears now, but it wasn't offensive then. And so when we're quoting these texts, listeners, you can just join us in that approach as historians, and we're being faithful to quoting the language as it was written at the time. Um, but like I said, we are going to um, kind of describe these authors and also the lay of the land so that we understand the context of what was going on at the time. I'll start by taking Mary Eastwood's bio, um, who was one of the authors of Jane Crow and the law. Uh, Mary Eastwood was born on June 1st, 1930. She was a white woman, a lawyer, and a civil rights advocate. Um, she graduated from the University of Wisconsin Law School in 1955 and then moved to Washington, D.C. In 1960, she joined the Justice Department's Office of Legal Counsel, serving as an attorney advisor and later as an equal opportunity advisor. In 1965, Eastwood and Polly Murray published the landmark article Jane Crow and the Law, Sex Discrimination and Title VII in the George Washington Law Review. That's obviously the, the document that we're going to be discussing today. It's also interesting to note that in 1966, so after the article was published, Mary Eastwood was one of the 28 women who founded the National Organization for Women. So um, these women were inspired to start now 
NOW, the National Organization for Women, because although Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which we're talking about today, although that had been passed, no one was enforcing it. And so that was actually the reason that they started the National Organization for Women was discussions about how nobody was enforcing Title VII. And so this just kind of highlights something that we've talked about on other episodes, too, especially when we were talking about the UN Declaration of Human Rights, about how sometimes the United Nations or even like our own country will make laws or declarations and people just don't follow them. And we'll talk about that a little bit later, too, um, on this episode. But anyway... So at the third National Conference of State Commissions on the Status of Women, this group of women wanted to issue a demand that the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission carry out its legal mandate to end sex discrimination in employment because this title had passed. But they were pre- these, this group of women was prohibited from doing that or they just ignored their demands. And so this group of women just was fuming and they gathered in Betty for Dan's hotel room and um, the the like urban legend. But I think it's actually true because it's that's what everybody says happened is that for Dan just wrote on a paper napkin in this hotel room. She wrote the acronym now National Organization for Women. And Eastwood, Mary Eastwood, was part of their first legal committee. She helped to organize a picket of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission in protest of their sex-segregated help-wanted ads, which I'm like, what? Like, even they, the Equal Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, was, was you know, issuing these help-wanted ads that's like, women need not apply to this one. So just the in, the deeply entrenched sexism, even in the movement, was is just, it blows my mind. But anyway, that picket was planned in Mary Eastwood's apartment. So she was kind of right in the thick of things. And um, the the photo that you can find of Mary Eastwood is actually of her picketing. Um, That photo was published in the Washington Post the next day. So that's a little bit about Mary Eastwood. We're going to talk more about the other author of this article, Polly Murray. Um, We're going to talk, spend more time on her because she was just really such a fascinating and trailblazing woman. Um, I would really recommend to listeners in 2017, The New Yorker published an article about her by Katherine Schultz. Um, The title is The Many Lives of Polly Murray. And the tagline is, um, she was an architect of the civil rights struggle and the women's movement. Why haven't you heard of her? And we took some of the following bio from that New Yorker article. So I really recommend looking up that article. But Rochelle, will you introduce us to Polly Murray? Oh, yeah. And I'm so excited to cover a bio of this woman who may be an unsung hero, but was a career and cultural role model. Her writings, legacy and life inspired me in countless ways. Um, Talk about the modern hashtag goals. (laughs) Polly Murray was like politics and legal superstar of epic proportion. Uh, Polly Murray was born in Baltimore on November 20th in 1910. Both sides of her family were mixed racial origins with ancestors including black enslaved people, white enslavers, Native Americans, Irish, and free black people. Murray's parents identified as black. Her father, William Murray, was a school teacher and her mother, Agnes, was a nurse. In 1914, Agnes died of a cerebral hemorrhage when Polly was only three. 
After then, Polly's father began to have emotional problems as a result of typhoid fever. Relatives then took custody of her siblings, and Polly was sent to Durham, North Carolina, to be raised by her aunts. Eventually, her father was committed to a psychiatric institution, and all throughout Polly's childhood, she had the dream of going to the institution to rescue her father and bring him home. Tragically, her father received no meaningful treatment in the institution and was eventually beaten to death by a white guard. Polly was only 13 years old when he died. She stayed down there in Durham until the age of 16, at which point Polly moved to New York, finished high school, and prepared for college. In November 1930, so when she was only 20, she married William Roy Wynn in secret. But she soon came to regret the decision. Polly and William spent only a few months together and quickly had their marriage annulled. Polly Murray had a favorite teacher in school who inspired her to attend Columbia University, but she was turned away because that university didn't admit women. She didn't have funds to attend the partner women's school, Bernard College. So instead, she attended Hunter College, a free city university where she was one of very few students of color. She graduated from Hunter College in 1933 with a Bachelor of Art in English. Polly then applied to the University of North Carolina, but was rejected because of her race. This was still the Jim Crow era, upheld by the Supreme Court case of Plessy v. Ferguson, and all schools and public facilities in the state were segregated by law. Polly Murray contested her rejection, writing to officials ranging from the university leadership to President Roosevelt, then releasing those responses to the media in an attempt to embarrass them into action. Initially, the NAACP was interested in the case, but later declined to represent her in court. Concerns about her sexuality may have played a role in that decision. Polly often wore pants rather than the customary skirts, and she was open about her relationships with women. After her rejection from UNC, Polly Murray became involved in challenging segregation. In Petersburg, Virginia, she and her roommate and girlfriend, Adeline McBean, moved out of broken seats in the back section of the bus where state segregation laws mandated they sit and into the white section. They had been studying civil disobedience and they refused to return to the rear even after the police were called. As a result, they were arrested and jailed and in 1941, she started at Howard University Law School. Polly Murray was the only woman in her law school class, and in this environment, she became aware of sexism at the school. On Murray's first day of class, one professor remarked that he didn't know why women went to law school. She was infuriated and developed a feminist critique, which she labeled Jane Crow, alluding to Jim Crow the system of racial discrimination oppressing African-Americans. In 1942, while still in law school, she joined the Congress of Racial Equality, also known as CORE. That year, Pauli published an article, Negro Youth Dilemma, that challenged segregation in the U.S. military, which continued during the Second World War. She also participated in sit-ins, 
challenging several Washington, D.C. restaurants with discriminatory seating policies. These activities were ahead of the more widespread sit-ins in the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s. Pauli Murray was elected justice of Howard Court of Peers, the highest student position at Howard. And in 1944, she graduated first in her class. Traditionally, men who graduated first in the class were awarded the Julius Rosenwald Fellowship for graduate work at Harvard University. But Harvard did not accept women at that time. So Pauli Murray was rejected from Harvard, even despite a letter of support from FDR in response to her rejection, she wrote to Harvard, I would gladly change my sex to meet your requirements. But since the way to change has not been revealed to me, I have no recourse but to appeal to you to change your minds. Are you to tell me that one is as difficult as the other? After law school, Polly did her postgraduate work at Bolt Hall School of Law at Berkeley. And after passing the California Bar exam in 1945, Murray was hired as the state's first black deputy attorney general. That year, the Council of Negro Women named her its Woman of the Year, and Mademoiselle magazine did the same in 1947. In 1915, she published State's Law on Race and Color. This was an examination and critique of state segregation laws throughout the nation. Pauli drew on psychological and sociological evidence, as well as legal reasoning. An innovative discussion technique for which she had previously been criticized by Howard professors. Murray argued for civil rights lawyers to challenge state segregation laws as unconstitutional directly, rather than trying to prove the inequality of the so-called separate but equal facilities. In essence, she argued that the quote, separate, end quote, part of the clause was unjust. Not just that the facilities were unequal. Thurgood Marshall, then NAACP chief counsel and a future Supreme Court justice, called Murray's book, State's Law on Race and Color, the Bible of the Civil Rights Movement. And the NAACP used her approach of drawing on psychological as well as legal studies in its arguments for Brown versus Board of Education in 1954. So Pauli Murray's work was instrumental in winning the case that would end segregation. In 1961, President John F. Kennedy appointed Pauli to the Presidential Commission on the Status of Women. In a letter to civil rights leader A. Philip Randolph, she criticized the fact that the 1963 March on Washington had no women invited to make any of the major speeches or to be part of its delegation of leaders who went to the White House, among other grievances. She wrote, quote, I have been increasingly perturbed over the blatant disparity between the major role which Negro women have played and are playing in the crucial grassroots levels of our struggle and the minor role of leadership they have been assigned in the national policymaking decisions. It is indefensible to call a national march on Washington and send out a call which contains the names of not a single woman leader. In Murray's speech, Jim Crow and Jane Crow, delivered in Washington, D.C. in 1964, sheds light 
on the long struggle of African-American women for racial equality and their later fight for equality among the sexes. As she put it, quote, not only have they stood with Negro men in every phase of the battle, but they have also continued to stand when their men were destroyed by it, end quote. The Black women decided to continue standing for their freedom and liberty, even when their men began to experience exhaustion from a long struggle for civil rights. These women were unafraid to stand up for what they believed in, refused to back down from the long and tedious battle. Murray continued her praise for Black women when she stated that the Negro struggle was able to progress partly because of the indomitable determination of its women. It was in 1965, the next year when she published her landmark article, co-authored by Mary Eastwood, Jane Crow and the Law, Sex, Discrimination, and Title VII in the George Washington Law Review. The article discussed Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 as it applied to women and drew comparisons between discriminatory laws against women and Jim Crow laws. As we mentioned in the intro, this was Pauli's Law Review article that was later used by Ruth Bader Ginsburg to convince the Supreme Court that the Equal Protection Clause applies to women as well as men. That article, Jane Crow and the Law, is essential in understanding how patriarchy and white supremacy functioned in the United States in the mid-20th century. Later in 1965, Pauli studied at Yale Law School, becoming the first African-American ever to receive a Doctor of the Science Law degree from Yale. In 1966, she was a co-founder of the National Organization for Women, NOW, which she hoped could act as an NAACP for women's rights. Then, after her career as a professor, and already in her 60s, Pauli left Brandeis to attend seminary with the goal of becoming a priest. She was ordained in 1976, and after three years of study, she became the first African-American woman Episcopal priest and was the first generation of Episcopal women priest. That year, she celebrated her first Eucharist by invitation and preached her first sermon at Chapel of the Cross. That was also the first time a woman celebrated the Eucharist at an Episcopal church in North Carolina. In 1978, she preached in her hometown of Durham, North Carolina, and on Mother's Day at St. Philip's Episcopal Church, where her mother and grandparents had attended in the 19th century. Ultimately, in July of 1985, the world lost Polly Murray to pancreatic cancer. Hmm. I feel reverent <laughs> hearing all of that, and I can't believe that all of that was just one person's life. Like, I, I'm, it's just stunning to consider everything that she did, every barrier she broke, and how hard she worked in just one lifetime, how much she accomplished. It's just overwhelming to me. It was a lot. Yeah. I mean, and so groundbreaking. Even preaching in the 70s. So that was 20 years before I even saw a Black woman minister. Right. She did that. Right. Amazing. And again, like our in her 60s, at the end of her life, she just did not let up. I mean, not it's just all. incredible. 
Wow. Thanks, Rochelle. Okay, one last piece that it's important to understand before we actually start quoting the text is Title VII itself. And I'm going to attempt to explain it, but Rochelle, since you're the lawyer, then just jump in if I get stuff wrong, okay? Okay. (laughs) So the Civil Rights Act of 1964, enacted on July 2nd, 1964, is a landmark civil rights and labor law that outlaws discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, national origin, and then later sexual orientation. It prohibits unequal application of voter registration requirements, um, racial segregation in schools, and public accommodations, and employment discrimination. Interestingly, there had already been a Civil Rights Act of 1875, but in 1883, the United States Supreme Court ruled that Congress didn't have the power to to prohibit discrimination in the private sector. So that stripped the original Civil Rights Act of most of its power. And that just shows, I mean, there are always tensions between individual rights, states' rights, government mandates of morality, and the Civil Rights Act illustrates that tension kind of on the biggest possible scale, because in 1883, they basically were saying that it wasn't their right to interfere with the private sector, so with personal matters. So after 1883, there were various societal shifts like the New Deal in the 1930s that caused the Supreme Court justices to gradually shift their legal theory to allow for greater government regulation in the private sector. And so that paved the way for the country to be more willing to enact federal measures to overrule individual or state's autonomy. Ever since the Civil War, and especially during the Reconstruction era, some states instituted the practice of segregation in public spaces, including public schools. They claimed that this practice did not violate the 14th Amendment, which outlawed slavery and presumably granted equal rights to all U.S. citizens. This doctrine of separate but equal was confirmed in the Plessy versus Ferguson Supreme Court decision of 1896, which allowed state-sponsored segregation. That decision emboldened segregation states during the Jim Crow era. In 1954, Plessy versus Ferguson was overturned by the Supreme Court case Brown versus the Board of Education, and by law, schools were ordered to desegregate. But individual states dragged their feet at best. Some just like outright refused. And many southern states just would not desegregate their schools. So schools were vastly unequal in their resources and their offerings for children. And of course, buses and hotels and restaurants and lunch counters were all still segregated in violation of the law. And in addition, voter suppression was so widespread and complete that many African-Americans, especially living in rural areas of the Deep South, believed that they did not legally have the right to vote. So in response to this ongoing violation of human rights, civil rights leaders such as Dr. Martin Luther King, Ella Baker, John Lewis, Joanne Robinson, many, many, many others began demonstrations and a direct action campaign that became known as the Civil Rights Movement. So seeing that some states continued in flagrant violation of anti-segregation law, civil rights leaders pressured the new president, John F. Kennedy, and his brother Robert to propose a new Civil Rights Act to end discrimination on the basis of race. 
So President Kennedy first proposed the bill in 1963 in his report to the American people on civil rights. And Kennedy wanted legislation that would give, quote, all Americans the right to be served in facilities which are open to the public, hotels, restaurants, theaters, retail stores, and similar establishments, as well as greater protection for the right to vote, end quote. Kennedy delivered this speech in the aftermath of the Birmingham campaign and the growing number of demonstrations and protests for racial justice throughout the southern United States. Kennedy was moved to action following the elevated racial tensions and the wave of African-American protests in the spring of 1963. And it was said in a New York Times article at the time, actually, that if if Congress failed to pass President Kennedy's civil rights bill, the country would face another civil war. As we all know, President Kennedy was assassinated in November of 1963, and President Lyndon B. Johnson took over. And under pressure from civil rights leaders such as Dr. King and many others, he did push the bill forward. So despite huge opposition in Congress, the Civil Rights Act was finally enacted on July 2nd, 1964. So hooray, right? Finally, <laughs> like it's a huge deal. It's huge progress. But now we've arrived at our document today because as many women's rights groups noticed, they said this, quote, the prohibition against discrimination based on sex was added to Title VII at the last minute on the floor of the House of Representatives. The bill quickly passed as amended, but we're left with little legislative history to guide us in interpreting the act's prohibition against discrimination based on sex. Okay. So with all of that as background, let's dive in and share a couple of passages from this article on Title VII. And um, I'm going to share the first one, and then I have some questions for you, Rochelle. So I'll just start with a quote. Quote, the genius of the American Constitution is its capacity through judicial interpretation for growth and adaptation to changing conditions and human values. End of quote. Okay, so what I thought of when I read that is that some people right now are really excited that Amy Coney Barrett was appointed to the Supreme Court. Like, it's exciting that there's a woman on the Supreme Court. Um, my question is that, is this. So Amy Coney Barrett is um, an originalist, right? And so the original writers of the Constitution were 100% white men, and most, if not all, of those white men believed in white supremacy and male supremacy, right? And so to be an originalist, we're kind of like anchoring ourselves in those constructs of white supremacy and male supremacy, right? And so I just, I'm wondering, Rochelle, what you think of originalism as a philosophy and how that could impact women's rights. What do you think of that? Yeah, Amy, as a lawyer, I've always viewed originalism as detrimental to nearly everyone. Um, women's rights, uh, underrepresented groups like Black Americans, LGBTQ, um, the elderly. There are so many areas, those people who do not own land. If we truly believe in a, quote, constant original intent theory, that's just what you said. It would mean that we have to interpret the Constitution as it is consistent with what was meant by only those who drafted and ratified it. That premise is laughable 
to me. Mm-hmm. And in mm-hmm. any context, if you're part of a historically disenfranchised group, if you were unable to own property, if you were not white, if you were not male, nothing that we interpret in the Constitution would ever be a benefit to you. So in modern times, when we hear of people like Amy Coney Barrett, who still anchor themselves in originalism, I think it's a relic. It's a way to hold on to power in a classist, sexist, and frequently racist way. Mm. Okay. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's kind of what Murray is saying with that quote, right? Like the beauty of the Constitution is its ability to adapt and change, yes. right? Yes. Based on new understanding and like based on our evolution forward and becoming more aware of other right. people. Yeah. No, that's what we were kind of talking about before, right? It's a living, mm-hmm. breathing document. This very yeah. amendment, the 14th Amendment, right? And Title yeah. Seven. later on, not until 1972, we got Title Nine. The Constitution is developing. That was women's rights in education, which, you know, came long after this article that we're discussing. So if the Constitution wasn't a living, breathing document, we wouldn't have that. Not Title VII, Mm. not not even Title IX. Some of what's very normal in academic institutions would look predominantly white and certainly male. Hmm. Yeah, we're going to actually talk about Title IX in a few episodes from now. So that's that's a great perspective. And actually, like, if it weren't, like you said, I love that if it weren't a living, breathing document, I mean, even adding any of the amendments wouldn't, right? I mean, that's right. the whole point is that as we learn, we can, we can adapt. Huh. Yes. Okay. Fantastic. Okay. I have another question for you. So, and I'll start with another quote. So uh, from, from Murray and Eastwood's um, piece, quote, We think that sex discrimination can be better understood if compared with race discrimination, and that recognition of the similarities of the two problems can be helpful in improving and clarifying the legal status of women. Discriminatory attitudes toward women are strikingly parallel to those regarding Negroes. Women have experienced both subtle and explicit forms of discrimination comparable to the inequalities imposed upon minorities. The myths essentially deny a particular group equality of opportunity and then assert that because that group has not achieved as much as the groups enjoying complete freedom of opportunity, it is obviously inferior and can never do as well. End quote. Okay, so... The even calling the document Jane Crow and the law, she's already like establishing this intersectionality, right, of like race and gender. But here's one thing. I mean, I guess I'll share my thoughts and then ask you what you think. So one thing that we've talked about several times on the podcast and other episodes, which you've probably heard, is when women and particularly white women make the comparison of like gender issues with race issues. And this came up on our episode on the Seneca Falls Convention mm-hmm. when some white feminists like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony were claiming that they, as white women, that they needed the vote before black men. And then we shared this quote by Frederick Douglass. And I am going to actually read that quote by Frederick Douglass where he said, when women, because they are women, are hunted down through the cities of New York and New Orleans, 
when they are dragged from their houses and hung upon lampposts, when their children are torn from their arms and their brains dashed out upon the pavement, when they are objects of insult and outrage at every turn, when they are in danger of having their homes burnt down over their heads, when their children are not allowed to enter schools, then women will have an urgency to obtain the ballot equal to our own. End quote. So I feel, I mean, for me, I felt almost a little bit uncomfortable, even with this document, Jane Crow and the Law, where they say, like, let's compare the plight of women to the plight of African-Americans only because, and not to say it like it's Polly Murray writing it. So that's great. I don't question that at all. But what my fear is, is that I fear that maybe some privileged white women may make the same mistake that privileged white women keep making and that readers might read it and think that like, oh, all women universally are as oppressed as racial minority men and women have been in this country. And so I I did just feel a little bit of like trepidation with that. So how do you view that comparison? Did that make you uncomfortable at all? Or what did you think about it? Um, it is a difficult one indeed. Um, I view the comparison as not that, um, not a comparison or contrast at all. It, it cannot be either or. We are both and in our current times, or we are moving backward. Mm. This is a really difficult space, but it's an example for me. And as I raise both a young black man and a young black woman in this society, that policies are not a zero sum game. Underrepresented folks typically aren't at the center of power, nor with seats at many decision-making tables. One person's gain isn't equivalent to another person's loss. Right now, we all need to remember that the net change in power or benefits isn't zero. Both Black men and all women have lacked representation throughout American history. So starting to fall into traps of false dichotomies that pit us against each other is futile. Now, I do believe there's a necessary prioritization and sometimes even a leveling that we have to focus to make a decrease in areas where we see like a large delta. So for example, the end to police brutality and murder of Black men, akin to what you quoted from Frederick Douglass uh, moments ago. Mm -hmm. Stopping this type of brutality is necessary. At the same time, creating spaces for safety for women and education, for equal pay for women who are mothers, And these very seats and cities and spaces where you need to educate young men and women and police officers about how to be safe all need to happen. So that's why I say it's a both and for me Mm. when I think about Jane Crow and the law or Jane Crow and Jim Crow and finding space with advocacy groups to understand that we're not comparing and contrasting anymore. We're not saying me first. Oh, once I get it, then you can get it. We're saying we're not waiting anymore. We're allies. Me helping you rise 
and you helping me rise is a win for all of us. Hmm. Okay. I have another question. Is that okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm going to start with a quote again. Quote, several types of excuses are likely to be claimed as bona fide occupational qualifications that have no relationship to ability to perform a job. One might be based on assumptions of the life patterns of women in general. For example, the assumption that women are only temporary workers because they leave to marry and raise children, or the assumption that turnover among women is high because they must leave the job if the family moves. Such assumptions are often mythical. However, even if it could be proved that women are likely to leave the job earlier, this should not justify prejudging a particular individual. End quote. Okay, so I totally agree with that quote. Absolutely. And I love how that's moving the needle forward, especially, I mean, considering that that was written in the mid-1960s. Um. I was thinking in addition to that, like, I love it. And I feel like this issue should be viewed at a even a deeper and more fundamental level, because as we've mentioned on prior episodes, I just feel like, you know, creating families, having children, perpetuating the species, that's a human endeavor. It's not a women's issue. And so even in this quote, I feel like it's still kind of operating within this framework that like, oh, we need to make an exception for women, right? Um, I, I was just thinking about a friend of mine that I was talking to a couple of years ago, and he he's a, a coach at a CrossFit, super great guy. But he he was just commenting that like, wow, all of the women trainers are pregnant right now. Like, and and that was like it's creating a burden for the company. We're all having to work extra hours. Like, this is really he was he wasn't being a jerk about it, but he was, you know, he was stating facts that it was kind of a burden, but he was kind of, I guess he was complaining a little bit. Um, but I, I kind of looked at him and I had this epiphany for the first time in my life because he was, his attitude was a little bit, again, he, he's not a jerk, but he was, he, he kind of was looking at it like, well, why does that fall to me? I'm not a woman. I'll never be pregnant. I'm not going to cause a drain on this company by by ever needing maternity leave or taking time off to raise children, right? And so he, he was kind of like, well, this women's issue, like how do we manage this women's issue? And I I just said to him, I found myself saying it and I was just like, but you maybe you'll never be a woman, but you were a baby. You were a woman's baby. <laughs> like <laughs> that's how the species like perpetuates. That's how it works. And so a woman needing to take time off to give birth and to breastfeed and to nurture that baby, like that's everybody's issue. It's not a woman's issue. And um, so every single man on this planet was carried in a mother's womb and taken care of when he was a child. So I just feel like men, I, I still find a need for, for men and women to view this more as a human issue. So I was just curious about you in all of the different, you know, amazing jobs that you've had and this incredible career that you've created for yourself. And at the same time, you are a devoted and loving and present mother with your kids. And I'm wondering how this, how these things have been at play in your life. Yeah. Um, in so, so many ways, Amy, um, the first time is obviously in my own childhood home life, right? You Mm. know, I talked about 
my grandmother and my idol and being a role model. Um, but I was born into a very large family. I was the youngest. I had seven older brothers. And so my mother's job was as a full-time stay-at-home parent. And friends of ours, our family extended and immediate, and our church were never supportive of her efforts. There were things she, were in, she was interested in or would bring up about wanting to take a class or interior design or a language. It's so much negativity I watched happen when she would even broach the idea or try and do something on her own space or even to join in and something that would be part-time work that wasn't around the hours, you know, that there was the care and feeding of the kids. And it was, it was never supported. And, you know, I think of the quote, like, what happens when a dream is deferred? Mm-hmm. Does it wither up like a raisin in the sun? You mm-hmm. know, and, sh- and that had an impact on me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I went to law school and landed at a firm, um, this is a fact. It wasn't just my firm. This was widely understood three paths for lawyers at law firms, right? One, one track was called the partner track. And, you know, the partner track looked like those folks working really hard, building a lot of hours, you know, pushing, pushing, learning more, growing more, representing more, bringing in more business. Um, The second track was the of counsel track that looked Mm -hmm. like, you know, an associate who might take time for multiple clerkships with a court or go back for postgraduate work or do a stint in public service or academic career and then return to a firm as a very senior member, you know, called of counsel. And then there was the widely known and discussed mommy track. Oh, wow. It was called that? It was called the mommy track. Oh, wow. Okay. And it was a common way that they described women in the firm. The same women who did many of those things um, as men on the partner track and of counsel. And they'd also take a maternity leave. And then they would be deemed to be on the path of a mommy Mm. where those women lawyers were taken off professional development opportunities you know, removed from social events or large legal cases that required travel. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, many women who were deemed to have been on the mommy track were either pushed out of the firm or made to understand that there wasn't a path to partnership or of counsel for them. Um, And there are countless more examples right now, even in tech today, where Mm -hmm. startup companies or big tech execs coordinate guys weekends, you know, beer brewing challenges, mm. uh, jaunts to heavily gendered uh, segregated areas, um, gentlemen's clubs, or the mm. Burning Man <laughs> annual event, where these kind of wild social gatherings don't include women and allow for bonding, brainstorming, ultimately business development opportunities that women in tech are never even privy to. Hmm. They don't know when or where or what conversations are happening even still. Hmm. So it's impossible for women, it's impossible for anybody, for a Mm -hmm. a dad or a mom, right, to like be going full throttle in their career and taking care of a newborn. And then if you have like a toddler and a newborn and you want to be like a present parent, 
that's really hard to do all of it all at once. So like, what would be a solution that would include women at work more and not just automatically disqualify them and then include men more in the home? Like, yeah, fortunately, um, you know, when I practice in uh, the decades, late nineties, early two thousands, um, into 2010, there have been some positive changes, even in the language that we use around, um, you know, maternal, uh, maternity leave, instead of saying parental leave, the way that, you know, you hear about it now and changes that have been made in those spaces. Um, there are actions you can take that make clear what part-time resources look like, um, for associates and young lawyers, regardless of gender. Um, Mm -hmm. there are certainly practices that are implemented now today, legal tracking in the tech world where they are very intentional about what activities can be um, made available for everyone to participate in mm-hmm. and the variety of activities and very intentional partnerships and mentorships um, to give development opportunities to young women lawyers and young women and those folks not typically at the table, uh, even in the tech space now. So being really intentional about what opportunities you have how you partner and match up mentorships and make sure opportunities are equally um, shared amongst Mm -hmm. people on the team uh, are helping to make changes. I feel like in my career, I've seen so much and I have to say it's still slow going, Mm -hmm. but, but I do see some progress. Okay. That's good. That's encouraging. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so what were some passages that stood out to you from this document, Rochelle? Um, there were a couple. Um, the, the first was uh, this quote. The assumption that financial support of a family by the husband, father, is a gift from the male sex to the female sex, and in return, the male is entitled to preference in the outside world, is all too common. Underlying this assumption is the unwillingness to acknowledge any value for childcare and homemaking because they have not been ascribed a dollar value, end quote. This really stood out to me because there are remnants of these assumptions that still ripple throughout cases that we see now, class actions on unequal pay, discrimination in hiring or promotion of women, throughout all industries in the US. So the ability for people to make assumptions that a male peer is more deserving of a sizable bonus or taking into consideration if a man is the quote head of a household has had such underlying impact. Part of my work today is managing a course called unbiasing in hiring and promotion processes. And the reason we're still educating folks around this and doing reminder booster courses around it is because it's been such an underlying part. So to see that written in words and that to read, you know, these giants, famous firsts Mm -hmm. of women and feminist literature that was making reference to what we are still trying to Mm -hmm make sure people unlearn today really was just 
a passage that I thought, wow, I'm, it's so powerful when you're allowed to make decades long, centuries long assumptions into law, into policies, and to be very cognizant that this has been just a few years, if you compare it with the centuries that those assumptions were permitted, that for the past 30, nearly 40, we're just starting to unlearn, to unthink this way. Hmm. Um, Another passage that stood out for me is this quote, discriminatory attitudes toward women are strikingly parallel to those regarding Negroes. Women have experienced both subtle and explicit forms of discrimination comparable to the inequalities imposed upon minorities. And this stood out to me. We did end up touching um, on it a little bit earlier that there are subtle and explicit forms that are almost so institutionalized and made to be acceptable assumptions that we don't need to compare and contrast. We need to recognize that the patriarchy, white supremacy, has been something that's left an indelible mark for centuries in this country. And it stood out because someone was saying, this is so similar. But what we should realize is the reason that these discrimination, this discriminatory attitudes, this blatant discrimination, these assumptions are similar. It's because it's the same power dynamic of both white male supremacy and the patriarchy that is coming up with the attitudes and assumptions that discriminate on folks who are not white and male. Mm. Mm-hmm. It reminds me, I mean, it's been so valuable to have this be a historical project and, and to read these books chronologically because we established like, I just have found it so useful that Rianne Eisler in the very first episode kind of established this framework of a dominator model versus a partnership model. And so, I mean, to me, that just speaks to what what you're or it, it's a way of understanding like, oh, yeah, a dominator mentality is going to say, like, I'm on the top and I rule over you. And like, here are the features that I value. And so I'm going to prize those features and I'm going to denigrate these other features and I'm going to rank everybody according to how I see. So it is, it's all part of that same, that mentality of domination, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, that brings us to the end of our discussion today. So as we wrap up, what would you say is a major theme that stood out to you or um, just kind of a takeaway that you'll remember, Rochelle? Um, well, for me personally, it is um, the quote, uh, it is exceedingly difficult to determine whether a Negro woman is being discriminated against because of race or sex, end quote. Um, so as both Black and a woman in America, I, I frequently think about just that double jeopardy. Uh, reading that mm. quote, seeing that language um, was a major takeaway for me because it was important that these U.S. policies forced us to confront it, like the reckoning that both civil rights and women's rights movements in some areas had left a gaping hole, that it took decades 
to really get clarity for Black women on this dichotomy being part of both striving forward for the Black community, even though it was largely dominated by men in the civil rights movement, and being leaders in the women's rights movements, although again, also largely dominant by white women. Mm-hmm. And so a major takeaway is that 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 hole took decades to to really fill and mend. And and it's it's made me re- reflect where we're so fortunate to be entering an age now from civil rights and women's rights movements to now human rights. Mm-hmm. And in the US, perhaps our most important concern right now is the right to vote, to representative government with equal rights to education, to employment, to pay. I mean, I'm so hopeful that our economy will outgrow concepts of class competition, of us competing, you know, black versus white, you know, youth versus age or male versus female. Um, at least in matters of employment, education, you know, merit, individual quality will control rather than the prejudices and discriminatory assumptions that had been made and instilled for so long. Hmm. That's awesome, Rochelle. And I think we'll wrap up, honestly, with just that quote. Um, It's so powerful and so important. And it's also a perfect segue into our next episode, actually, which is going to be on that essay that you just referred to, um, which is called Double Jeopardy to be Black and Female. And so, um, but before I introduce that next episode, I just want to thank you again, Rochelle. This has been such um, a joy to have a reason to to chat with you about these um, really important issues. I so appreciate your perspective and so appreciate you spending the time with me today. So thank you thank so much you. for being here. And thank you, really. Thanks for having me. Thanks again, Rochelle. So as I said, I'm super excited to continue the conversation, which will really feel like really a continuation of, of this discussion. Next week, it's Francis Beale's Um, essay, Double Jeopardy, To Be Black and Female. Um, Frances Beale is special to me, actually, because I'm currently writing my master's thesis on the relationship between women and men in the civil rights movement and between black women and white women, again, in the civil rights movement. And I'm featuring Frances Beale extensively in one of my chapters. And so I've I feel like I've gotten to know her because I've read so much that she's that she wrote when she was a young worker in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And so when I saw her article on this list of essential texts for women's studies, I was so excited to learn that Frances Beale is a powerhouse. And I'm really excited to keep expanding my awareness and my understanding of um of this period of time and of um, the civil rights movement and racial justice and gender justice by studying more of Francis Beale. So anyway, look up this article online if you can, and then join us next time for the discussion of Francis Beale's Double Jeopardy to be Black and Female on Breaking Down Patriarchy. <laughs> <laughs>